Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So today, we are beginning a new Bible study. We're gonna walk through the book of Hebrews. Now this is interesting for me because we're at that place where I'm starting to teach through books that I've already taught through. If you go on our website and you look up Hebrews, I taught through Hebrews once. I don't know if it was here when we were at the Young Actors Theater. I think it was around 2018, but I taught through Hebrews and I did it in a month. Yeah, yeah. I laughed when I saw that. Uh, So what we're going to do this time is we're going to walk through Hebrews verse by verse. The last time I didn't do verse by verse, we kind of just took chunks out and uh, we went through topics that were in the book. Uh, But this time we're going to go verse by verse. We do a little bit slower. We're going to do each chapter. I'm going to try to do a chapter a week. Um, One or two chapters, we may stretch it out over two weeks. But my goal is to teach through the entire book um, verse by verse. Uh, And in order to do that, there needs to be a little bit of setup from the book of Hebrews. So what I want to do is I want to set the stage for you for this book so that as we enter into it, you have some understanding of who the author might have been and who the audience might have been and to get your mind back to that place in the first century so that you can understand what these people were struggling with and how eerily similar some of the things they were struggling with are things that we're still struggling with today. So this book was actually not a book, it was a letter. Uh, It's called The Letter to the Hebrews. And it was written around 80, 60, or 70. So probably about 30-ish years after Jesus uh, rose from the dead. The church is still vibrant and young. Uh, It's growing rapidly. Paul is traveling around spreading the gospel. Uh, But there is a church, a group of people, um, who were probably somewhere in the area of Italy, on the outskirts of Rome, suburbs probably, who were struggling with something. Now, the author of Hebrews is unknown. We, We don't know who wrote this letter, but there are lots of candidates. And depending on who you ask, you get all kinds of different answers. Some of the candidates are Paul. Um, Some think that Luke wrote it. Uh, Because of the style of Greek that it's in, it's very formal. uh, And it's organized in such a way that it mirrors some of the classical Greek argumentation schools that were prominent at the time, like around Alexandria. So when you read through it, you're like, oh, this this mirrors some of the teachings that we have from historical records of what an argument would have been, uh, or how an argument would have been arranged in the first century if you went to a Greek rhetorical school. So whoever wrote this uh, spoke high Greek uh, and wrote in high Greek and was very eloquent. So Luke is a a candidate. Another candidate uh, is Barnabas. Well, Paul's traveling companion. Another candidate is Apollos. Remember him? He was the one who went to Corinth and he spoke really well. We know that he had a Greek Jewish background uh, 
and the people in Corinth elevated him some to even a, a, a status of like greater than Paul, and there was this kind of competition within the church, like who are you a follower of? Are you a follower of Paul? Are you a follower of Apollos? So Apollos is a candidate. He's my personal favorite. I, if I had to guess who wrote this, I, I would guess probably Apollos, or maybe this last guy, Philip the Evangelist. Um, remember him from our study in Acts. Uh, we don't know who the author is, but we do know that whoever the author was, was close to the apostles, was familiar with Jesus' teaching. And as we find out later in the book, around 10, 12, 11, uh, 10, 11, 12, um, he's referencing some of the people who are traveling companions with Paul. Timothy's actually referenced in the letter too. So whoever wrote this letter was close to the apostles and Paul uh, and his small group. Now, when we look at the audience of this, we also don't know who the audience is. But our best guess, if you look at the very end of the book, there is a call out to uh, the reference from some of the brothers who are from Italy say hello. So the idea being if whoever wrote this letter was traveling with Timothy and Paul and was friends with some of the people from Italy and they're giving a shout out back to whoever this is written to, the chances are very high that this letter was probably written to a small house church in the suburbs outside of Rome. Now why the suburbs outside of Rome? Because of the setting. The first seven chapters of this book are set up as an argument to prove the supremacy of Jesus over specific things in the lives of these believers. But then, as we get through eight to the end of the book, what you find is there's this encouragement. It shifts, there's, it starts as, a, as, as an argument and then ends as a letter of encouragement. And what it's is encouraging the church to do is to not shrink back in the face of upcoming persecution. Now, what is fascinating about the historical record from Rome is around AD 49, there was an emperor who's, uh, who, who uh, well, uh, we'll get to the emperor in a minute, but around AD 49, um, there was an uproar in Rome amongst uh, the Jewish uh, community. And if you go back and you read Josephus and some of the other historical writers at the time, what you find out is that in AD 49, this uproar in the Jewish sector of Rome started because Christians were getting, Jewish, Jewish people were getting converted to Christianity and were going to synagogue and were creating an uproar in the synagogue because they were preaching that Jesus was the Messiah we've been waiting for and these Jews who had not converted did not like that. So it created this uproar that turned into riots and the emperor at the time, Claudius, said, you know what? all of the Jews are kicked out of Rome. And so he just kicked everybody out. Every, if you're Jewish, it doesn't matter if you're Christian or if, or if you, you're not a Christian, you're Jewish, it doesn't matter. All of you are kicking all of you out of Rome. And so there was this intense persecution among the Jewish community because now their businesses were shut down. They weren't allowed to operate in Rome. Some of their homes, they were kicked out and they all kind of moved out. Uh, there was this, uh, this, this great leaving of Rome. Some of them fled all the way to Jerusalem, but some of them just fled out into the suburbs. And most uh, theologians think that this letter was written to a small house church that had gone through that persecution but now it's 60 or AD 60, and there's a new emperor in town. His name is Nero, and he's got a habit 
of blaming Christians for the things that are happening bad inside of Rome. And so they're sitting around thinking, things don't look good. I remember when I lost my home 15 years ago. I don't want to lose my home again. I certainly don't want to lose my life. And so maybe I should just not be as public with my faith. And so there was a temptation in the church to kind of shrink back, maybe not be so demonstrative. Like, yeah, 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 I still believe in Jesus, but like, I'm not going to talk about it at work. I'm not going to have, maybe I'm a little more apprehensive at the coffee shop to, to have a conversation about this guy that changed my life. Maybe if Rome, they asked me, hey, you know, just to kind of, why don't you just make sure you say a little prayer to the emperor when you go down and you pay your taxes? All right, it's, it doesn't mean anything. It's not a big deal. The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, no, that's, that's a really big deal. You don't, get, you don't get two allegiances. You pledge your allegiance to one man, and it is not the emperor. And so the temptation in this first century story is that the believers in these Roman sub, suburbs are scared and they start hiding their faith. And the writer of Hebrews speaks to this fear and this hiding he does it in a really fascinating way. He does it with a robust education of the Old Testament, which to me has always been the most fascinating thing about this letter. Are you afraid? Are you fearing for your life? Are you uh, uh, overwhelmed and hopeless? Are you constantly being nagged by society uh, to, to follow these social norms and to do things that the Bible tells you not to do? Every movie you go see, are you bombarded with stuff that is contrary to what bi- the, the Bible tells you you're supposed to live your life? Are, are you at the point where you are just so tired with everything happening in the world and all the nonsense and all the churches? I think it would just be easier if I just stayed home. I didn't want to go to church. Maybe I'll just watch it on TV. The answer biblically to that is, let's read the Bible together. The answer to, I'm shrinking back. The the answer to, I've got this massive fear that people aren't going to like what I have to say when I start talking about my Lord and Savior. The answer to that is a vigorous study in the Old Testament. Who would have thought? Let's go back to the Old Testament and let's see what it has to say about your predicament today. And to me, that's the most fascinating thing and that's why I want to examine the book of Hebrews. Because what Hebrews is doing is it asks us to examine everything in your life. That fear that you have, whether it's just Fear in general, because you watch too much television news. Or maybe it's fear because somebody told you if you don't do this thing, these bad things are gonna happen. Let's take that fear and let's hold it up next to what the Word of God says about the supremacy of Jesus and see if it still looks that scary. Are, are Are you afraid of what the future might hold? Are you afraid of what decisions your kids might make or where they may go in life or, or who they may choose to follow? Let's go ahead and take that and let's just put it right up here next to the supremacy of Jesus and let's see if it's actually that scary anymore. And let's just go ahead and do that with everything. 
Those thoughts that you have in your head that have been ruling your life since you were in middle school, let's just go ahead and take those thoughts and let's hold them up next to the supremacy of the God who created the universe and is holding all of it together with the power of his word and let's see if those things that have been ruling your life still have any power. You feel me? This is why Hebrews is such a good book because it invites God's people to take the medicine of God's word to deal with the issues that we deal with on a daily basis. The world, doesn't, the world has these problems too. The world struggles with this stuff, but the world doesn't look at God's word as supreme because it elevates Jesus to a place of superiority in our lives. It says, well, let's fix these problems with, with man-made solutions. And God's word says you can't fix man-made problems with man-made solutions. You need outside intervention. And so let's look at what God has said about himself and his son, and let's elevate Jesus to the highest status of supremacy, and then examine the issues you've been struggling with and see if they still hold any weight. You with me? And here's how we're gonna start it. We're gonna start it by looking at angels. All right, so we'll get to angels in chapter, uh, verse four, but before we start there, the writer of Hebrews starts his book with the most unbelievable sentence. Now in English, it's split up in a multiple sentence, but in Greek, uh, verses one through four is all one sentence, and it is a doozy. So let's break it up into the first two. The writer of Hebrews starts his book by saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Let's pause right there. Right from the start of the book, the author elevates Christ as superior to all creation. And when I say creation, I mean all creation. Everything that has ever been created by his hands or via his own people because he created mankind to be able to create things. So I'm talking everything. Everything you see and everything you don't see, Jesus reigns supreme over all of it. Now that's a big deal. None of this is like an aha moment for us. None of us is like, huh, I never really thought about it like that. I guess Jesus is over all things. We kind of function from this posture that, yeah, Jesus is over all things. But knowing something and thinking through how that thing that's true is real in our life are two totally different things. And the writer of Hebrews is inviting us over the next seven chapters to consider how this true thing is not just true, but true in your specific circumstance. And he starts big. He says, everything you see, everything you don't see, it has an owner. 
Christ was the heir to all things that were created. He is over all. And not just over all, like he's in charge of it, but over all in that he owns all of it. He's the boss over everything. Over your future, your job, your finances, your hobbies, your shirt, your hat, the chair you're sitting in, your spouse, your kid's future, your retirement policy. Are you getting this? He is over everything. That's what it means to start contemplating the supremacy of Jesus over all things. So he is the heir of all things. He's over everything. But right from the start, we're told that he is also a God who is involved in all of this stuff. We're told that he is not just some watchmaker that sets, it in, sets the creation in motion and then steps away and doesn't touch anything. We're told that he spoke to our fathers by the prophets and he spoke to us by his son. So in the first two verses, we have that Christ is over all things and he is a hands-on kind of boss. Now, you could stop there, walk away, and be like, okay, for the next week, this changes everything. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps packing on the resume of Jesus because he's about to switch gears and start challenging the things in your life that are holding a position of power and authority higher than Jesus. And you're going to see how ridiculous it looks when you're holding this thing at the same status as the guy who created all things, who is intimately involved in all things and is holding all things together. That's where we're going in verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. How does the sun do what it's supposed to do and not just fall out of the sky? Well, it's where it's supposed to be because Jesus told it, don't move. And it don't move. Have you ever thought that when you look up in the sky at night, those stars that you're staring at are the same stars people were staring at 4,000 years ago? They haven't moved. They're still there. Why? Because the supremacy of Jesus, his word said, don't move. They're like, yes, sir. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what do you know about this Jesus? We're told that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. The writer of Hebrews is drawing on symbolisms that is kind of lost on us because we don't do mail this way anymore. But when an official document would be sent, there would be a wax, uh, there would be wax dropped onto the seal and it would be, there would be um, the, the emperor's seal or the official seal would be stamped on top of it and you couldn't break the seal 
unless you were the person who was supposed to open it and read the letter. And when it arrived to you, the imprint in the wax told you, man, this thing carries some weight. It's not the ring, but, the, but it it's essentially stands for the same thing. And the imprint is the exact imprint of the ring. When you look at it, this is what you see. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He's the radiance of his glory. When you look at the sun, the rays that are bouncing off the sun that hit us, that's radiance. Christ to the Father is like the rays of the sun or the imprint in that wax. He holds a lot of weight. He is God. He is man. And we're told that he upholds the universe with his word. Now this invites us to connect other things that we know in scripture. And this is where the fun starts. Because as I'm just reading through this and teaching this, this is just an appetizer for you to leave this place and go read it for yourself. You need to be chewing on Hebrews for yourself. And when you start chewing on it, you need to take these little invitations and go run with it. So when he says he upholds the universe with the power of his word, you should start thinking, of the way that God created the universe in Genesis chapter one. How did he do it? Well, he spoke things into existence. And then your mind jumps over to John one, one through three. Jesus was the word. Jesus spoke the universe into existence. And then your mind should jump over to Revelation because of our study that we just did. What does John picture Jesus as? He pictures him as this king who's got a sword in his mouth. What does Hebrews 4 tell us about the word of God? It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You see where I'm going with this? The invitation for you as a believer to not just read this and be like, well, I got my daily Bible reading and I'm gonna, okay, got through Hebrews 1, done. And that ain't gonna cut it. You're not gonna grow that way. When you get into this word and you see these invitations, you're like, oh man, where does this take me? Because the word of God, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to get on the inside of you and mess you up, to change you, to transform you, to grow you. But if you hold it at arm's length, okay, that's good. You're never going to change. And you're going to be 30 years into this Christian walk and be like, man, I look around some of these people and they just seem really excited about being a Christian and I don't get it. I don't understand what the, what is it? It's because you never chased those rabbits. You never got into the word. You never let it get inside of you and change you and mess you up. You never let it divide you to soul and spirit, joint and marrow. You never let it discern the thoughts and the intentions of your heart because you always looked at it with one eye kind of squinting. I don't know about that. This was written a long time ago and I don't know how we got here and, and maybe the interpretations are off. This isn't like any other book. This isn't something you read in the library and you're like, well, I don't know about that. I'll take this. But these other things, rip them out. No, this is literally God's revealed word. He spoke it through the prophets. He spoke it through his son. This is God speaking to you. That's this. 
And when it talks about Jesus, it's framing in our mind the authority of our king. He's not just some other religion. He's not just some other way. He's not just another God that if we all just pray to the same, you know, you, you, you pray to your God, you pray to your, you, you pray to your Jesus, I'll pray to my Jesus, and we'll all get there eventually. That's not how any of this works. When the writer of Hebrews is trying to comfort the early church, he tells them, don't be afraid about persecution coming your way and don't shrink back in your faith and sharing it because the God who's on your side is over everything. And if you don't see him that way, that's part of the problem. Because what we're looking at here when we see the author's intent just in the first four verses, we see that Jesus is over all things. He's hands-on. He's the exact imprint of the Father. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And he's currently ruling over all things. What problem could you possibly be facing that is heavier or holds more authority or power than the guy we just read about in those four, four verses? I'm serious. I don't, look, I don't care what your past is. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how you're thinking or what's been done to you or what you have done to yourself. If you look at Jesus, this Jesus, he is supreme over anything you can throw my way. Well, you, you, you don't know what was done to me. Well, we can have coffee and you can explain it to me, but at the end of the coffee, I'm gonna tell you that Jesus is over that. Well, you don't know what's coming my way. I'm gonna lose everything. Well, who do you think owns everything? I'm, 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 I'm worried about my future. I might not add up. I've got these images that like people expect a lot from me. Who do you think created people? This is the beginning of how the Bible is asking you to start thinking through your problems and following Jesus. See, we, we, read, we read the Gospels and we're like, okay, I think I got it. Like, okay, just follow Jesus. And then we hit this one thing that seems like a massive thing. And it gets really big in our mind. We're like, oh man, it's, it's finances. I'm not making enough money or it's relationship with my spouse or whatever it is. I don't care what it is. We're talking everything. It gets thrown your way and you're like, man, that's just like, that's a big one. That's a, that's a Mount Everest. I don't know if I'm gonna get over this. Well, guess who made Mount Everest? Do you see how silly it looks? When you biblically start dissecting your issues in the light of the supremacy of Jesus. He is bigger, overall, holds all things together. He's the boss in charge. He's intimately involved. He knows all the circumstances, and there's nothing you can throw his way. And he's going to be like, huh, I hadn't considered that. That is a big one. Give me 10 minutes, and I'll come back with a solution. Nothing. I'm about to lose custody of my kids. Who do you think made kids? Who do you think gave the judge? breath in his lungs. Seriously, are we not considering, you don't know, you don't know know what I was given, the sentence I was given, I'm never going to get another job. Really? 
If that's how you think, then why are you even following Jesus? Don't you understand what you have inherited? Man, I'm a nobody. This business is never going to get off the ground. Nobody knows who I am. Do you not understand that God invented communication? This is the most fascinating thing about Red Hills. Like, we've never done any advertisement. We, we never told anybody, hey, we put a billboard out, hey. Because guess who invented word of mouth communication? Jesus. And so we said, Lord, whoever you want to be here, just send them here. And it is so, it's comical when I have a conversation with people, somebody's new, and I'm like, hey, how'd you find the church? Man, like so-and-so told me about so-and-so, or you know, like I just Google search and I just popped up. What? How did, we meet at a gym. How did you find us? We're in the middle of nowhere. Look, it's because God is over everything. Now, in this church, what is the thing that they're struggling with most? And it's fascinating. Their issue, to begin with, they have some, a lot of issues, but the writer of Hebrews starts with the supremacy of angels. Jesus is over angels. I'll talk about how weird that is in a minute, but let's get into some of the verses. Let's go to verse 5, and let's read through 8. So we just finished in 4, saying that Jesus has a name that is superior to angels. In verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Where is he getting that from? He's quoting Psalm 2-7. He's quoting the Old Testament. Or again, I will be a father to him and he should be a son. Where is that? Well, he's quoting 2 Samuel 7-14. When God told David, David said, man, I want to build a house for you, Lord. You've done so much in my life. I want to build, I don't want you living in a tent. I want to build a place of worship for you. I want to build a home. And God, God was like, I never asked for a home. But I understand the desire of your heart. So because you're a man of war, you're not going to build a home for me, but your son is going to build a home for me. And his kingdom's going to last forever. And everybody's like, oh, okay, Solomon, I get it. And God's like, <laughs> no, 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 not Solomon. Another son who's going to come and build a temple. He's going to build it in three days. He's going to call people from the far nations to come join him. That son is going to rule and reign forever. Verse 6 says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But, he's, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, why, why did the writer of Hebrews start with angels? Now, this is a quick little sidebar, a little history lesson. If, you've, if, if you're familiar with the history of the nation of Israel, what you've got is after David dies, his son Solomon takes the throne, and the nation is great. There's a lot of peace, and he builds a temple, and things are great. And Solomon dies and his son takes over, Rehoboam, and he is a nightmare of a king. He's so bad that essentially the kingdom splits into two 
There's a civil war kind of a situation. And what you end up after Solomon dies is a southern kingdom called Judah and a northern kingdom called Israel. The king in the south is Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and the king in the north is this guy named Jeroboam. And the north, from the get-go, they have been idolatrous and wicked and they won't serve the Lord. Their temple is not even in their city or in their country. The temple, Solomon's temple, is in the south in Judah. Well, both kingdoms aren't good. Eventually, God allows them to both fall to foreign nations. Israel's wiped off the map. Judah falls to Babylon and they're taken into captivity. And you're probably familiar with the story of Israel being in captivity. Eventually they're let go and they come back and they rebuild. And then there's this weird period of like 400 years of silence. From the point they come back, we've got, we've got Nehemiah, we've got the stories of the temple being rebuilt, we have some minor prophets, we've got Malachi, Malachi's talking about this coming savior, okay, we're, we're good, and then all of a sudden there's this silence, and then Jesus is born. Well, what happened during that silence? You ever wondered that? Well, it turns out a lot happened during that silence. The Jewish people were writing a ton of literature during that period, not biblical, inspired by the Holy Spirit literature, but they were just chronicling their lives of, 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 of how they got where they got. And some of it started getting really weird. And so during this period from like Babylon, the return of Babylon, actually it started in Babylon, until the time where Jesus returns, there is this heightened awareness of spirituality. And some of it is connected to the fact of being in Babylon. Because when they get there, all the Jews are told, okay, you have to start learning about all these Babylonian gods and goddesses and idols. We're gonna change your names, we're gonna indoctrinate you. And this creates kind of a, a response in the Jewish people. It's like, well, we've got, I mean, we've got spirits too. We've got angels. We've got a God who's over all things. And so in addition to all the scripture that had been written during the period uh, of the, the prophets and the kings, there's this other literature that starts popping up. And some of it is in our Bible, like the book of Daniel, the back book of Zechariah. But in these books, you find a heightened awareness of angels. If you read through the book of Daniel, you're like, man, there's angels everywhere. They're like delivering messages, they're flying around, they're fighting in the air, they're doing all kinds of stuff. And Zechariah, same thing, man, they're riding horses, delivering messages, there's angels all over the place. Well, that's just in our Bible. Outside of that literature, <clears throat> outside of the Bible, there was all kinds of literature, <clears throat> excuse me, that had this heightened awareness of angels. And you see it bleed over into the New Testament too. You see it in the book of Acts. Angels are showing up on the scene, opening prison doors, and we're like, peace out. And then and these guys are like leaving, and they're like, oh man, that was an angel. We saw it in the book of Revelation. Angels are delivering messages to John. Angels are all over the Bible. Angels are a real thing. But during this intertestament period, there was tons of angel literature. There is an entire collection of work called the Pseudepigrapha of uh, their stories about the Jewish people and um, some are prophets. One of the most famous ones is the book of Enoch. Um, and it's a collection of these stories of things that transpired here on earth. And they actually have uh, like 15, 20 angels in the book and all of them have names. And so during this period of the first century, right before Jesus was born up to the first century, angels were everywhere. Everybody was talking about angels. Angels were the big thing. Angels were seen as like the, 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 the deliverers of the messages of Israel. They were seen as some like the saviors, the warriors of Israel. 
And so when the writer of Hebrews is addressing his audience, the first thing he has to address is, hey, I know you guys are like big on angel culture, but there's a guy who's more supreme than angels. There's a guy who holds more authority than angels. So like, I want you to think in your mind like your most favorite like superhero angel. Jesus is more supreme than that. What angel did God ever call his son? What angel has a throne at the right hand of God? What angel did God command the other angels to worship? Christ is the supreme being over all things. In Jewish thought, angels held that place. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, man, now that you've come to understand Jesus, you've got to get angels off those thrones. You can't keep living like this thing you can't see that's working behind the scenes has more authority than God's own son. And the way he makes this argument is fascinating. He does it from the Old Testament. He, he cites Psalm 2.7, 2 Samuel 7.14. He goes into Deuteronomy 32. He goes to Psalm 104. And he's essentially saying, look, I'm not making any of this up. This stuff is in y'all's book. Jewish, Greek-speaking believers that love the Old Testament, I'm proving to you from the Old Testament that Jesus is superior to all things. Which is fascinating because it, 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 it says something to us. There is a mindset in some Christian circles that the Old Testament is a Jewish book and the New Testament is a Christian book. That's not true. The New Testament and the Old Testament are both are God's people's book. This book, this whole thing, the Old and the New Testament belongs to God's people. And if you look at this thing as stuff that's past and not important anymore, and the, at the end of this stuff is important stuff, now we've got to pay attention to it, you're going to miss 80% of the book. Because what we have here is not old stuff that's not important anymore. What we have is promises and fulfillments. That's the separation in the Word of God. Promises and fulfillments. Not old stuff that doesn't mean anything anymore. Promises and fulfillments. Why is that so important to us? Because God has made promises to us that have not yet come true. And if we look at his track record, we can hold on to those promises that they will come true. He's told us that he's going to return one day, flying on the clouds, but he hasn't done it yet. Well, it's been a long time, 2,000 years. Maybe it's not true. Well, let's go back into the previous promises and the previous fulfillments and reassess where we should put our hope. Let's finish the book, go to verse, or ch uh, this chapter, go to verse nine. It says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's uh, Psalm 45. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the works of your hands. That's Psalm 102. They will perish, but you remain and they will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's Psalm 110. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
The writer of Hebrews finishes this chapter by saying, what angel has took part in laying the foundation of creation? You think so highly of these things you can't see. What angel actually was asked by God to sit at his right hand until he makes his enemies a footstool? Angels are God's servants. They're not God. Now we step back and we're like, oh, duh, I know that. We're reading this, we're like, man, I don't understand how this church could even struggle with this. I agree with all of this. Jesus is supreme. I don't have an issue with angels rising above the supremacy of Jesus. I get it. They're all created things that you can't see, but I don't worship them. Well, man, good for you. I'm so glad that you don't worship things you can't see. I'm so glad that you don't worship things you can't see. I'm really overjoyed that unseen forces don't have any governing authority over your life. That you don't make decisions in your life or you're overjoyed or live in fear because of these hidden agendas that are running your life without your control. The fact that Babylon and its cultural influence and the ways of the dragon have no sway on you is good news. I'm so happy for you. Can you pick up the sarcasm I'm laying down? Look, it, your issue may not be angels, but you're still a Hebrew. Why? Hebrew was a word that was given to those who were the descendants of Abraham, but its root is a word that means to pass through or to go through, because Hebrews were the ones who passed through the water to get to salvation. So Hebrews are ones who are associated with God's people and they have a history of passing through stuff. So it may not be angels that have taken that highest authority of your life, but it's something unseen because the Hebrews are still Hebrews. It may not be angels, but there is something that is causing your faith to shrink back because it's difficult. There is something going on in your life or in culture or that's happening right now that's saying, and I don't know if I wanna be as serious about this Jesus thing as I used to be because there are some repercussions about it now. It's not a socially acceptable thing anymore. Now when I talk about it, all I get is hate. So maybe I just don't talk about it so much. It's not an angel but there are some unseen demonic former angels who are at work trying to keep your faith from being as robust as God wants it to be. Are you hearing what I'm saying? When you look at this book, the fear that we can't see, the fear that they couldn't see, still caused a shrinking back or their faith to, to, to shrivel up. And our struggle in 2023 looks very similar to the struggle in AD 65. But here's the good news. The solution back then is still the solution today. The answer, the solution, it's found in God's word. How do you combat the increasing overwhelming feeling from culture and unseen forces that you need to shut up and stop talking about Jesus. 
You go to His Word, and you read, and you read, and you read. And as you read, your image, your perspective, the Christ that you see gets higher and higher and higher and higher. And pretty soon, the Jesus you serve in your mind is so superior, so much bigger than anything being thrown at your way. The moment it's thrown at your way, it looks laughable. I started this, throwing out some possible things that you could be struggling with. Ah, my job isn't looking good. We've been trying for a certain number of years. We can't have kids. I don't know what I'm going to do about my kids. They don't want to listen to anything about Jesus. I'm looking at the school system. Things look bad. I can't go watch a movie without being indoctrinated with something. Everywhere I look, looks like the world's on fire. All right, well, keep them coming. Keep throwing things at me because we haven't hit a place yet where anything you have thrown at me is bigger than supremacy of Jesus. The guy who created all things is ruling over all things and is holding all things together by the power of his word. That's Jesus. And if you're struggling with things being thrown your way, you are a sucker and you keep falling for them and believing their lies because there is one issue in your life you hasn't addressed and that is Jesus isn't superior in your life. I love you but that's the truth. Your problem is you've got gods sitting on his throne instead of him. Your understanding is anemic. Your reading of God's word, your, your, the way it just frames and shapes inside of you who Jesus is, is little because you're not spending enough time in this word. But there's good news. You can fix that. The more you spend in this word, the more the image of Christ is shaped for you and the bigger he becomes. And so here's what the invitation from Hebrews 1 is. The answer to all of the things that are being thrown our way, in Hebrews 1 it's angels for us, it may be angels, maybe something else, but the answer is always the same. A long, steady exaltation of Jesus by reading his word. You're like, ah, that's too easy. You know why you think that? Because Satan has convinced you there's gotta be more to it than that. There's gotta be a little work you put into it. It can't be just a simple renewing of your mind by reading his word. There's gotta be more to it than that. And I'm here to tell you, there's not. You're looking at the wrong things. If you start beholding the Word of God and letting the Word of God shape for you the image of Christ and His supremacy, there is nothing that is coming your way that will look larger or more intimidating than His throne. That's the truth. So, Jesus is over angels, but He's also over your career and he's over your family, and he's over your thoughts, he's over your past, he's over your future, he's over your emotions. Say that one again. Jesus is over your emotions. Jesus is over everything. And that's why we're reading Hebrews. Let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.